listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. Some years back, I was in Thailand at a monastery, and I was doing a, a retreat, a rather ex- extensive, uh, it was a 10-day 10 10-day 10 retreat. And the gentleman who was running this, this monk, uh, I was sitting and having a conversation with him, very similar to in the Zen style of Dokusan, you know, where I would go up with my question. And it w- I was amazed at how free-flowing the dialogue was. And he, I asked him, I said, so what is the most difficult part for Westerners as you see it, he had been tre- uh, teaching Westerners the Vipassana, you know, Vipassana meditation for decades, and he said, "He said, there's no question about this." I go, "Well, what what is it?" He goes, "Westerners don't understand. Not me, not mine." I said, "Oh." Can you help me with that? And uh, he proceeded to describe how that our system of government, our system of economics, culturally and so forth, everything is predicated on the individual, the me, and the mine. And so when that orientation is kind of like a center of gravity for an entire culture, it makes it that much more difficult to kind of break through and get into the not me and the not mine. I'm paraphrasing about an hour's worth of conversation there, but basically that was the thrust of where he was going with this. And amazingly, if we don't recognize the non-self if we don't recognize the not me and the not mine, we're in trouble as practitioners. We can have really uh, awakened egos, but we can't awaken past that separation. So how do we begin to even uncover what it means to recognize that there isn't a me and there isn't a mind, that there, uh, at least that that's not the whole story, that the whole story of our existence is not that I'm here and you are there, and so is everything else, that that separation somehow has an opportunity to reveal itself as false, And it does this whenever we sit still. Whenever we really, really sit still. Or we walk still. Or we live still. When stillness begins to inform all that moves, the boundary between self and other begins to fall apart in really constructive ways 
as long as there is an ethical code that we live by. And I say that because if the boundary between self and other begins to just kind of fall away and we recognize that, oh goodness, it's all one truth, it's all one thing, there is no right and wrong in that space. And if we are acting from a place where there is no right and wrong, that pretty much gives any remnant of ego permission to behave any way it wants to behave. Thinking that it's awake. Performing, if you will, from a place of me and mine. I can take whatever I want. I can do whatever I want because there's really no right and wrong. This is troublesome. And this is something that as practitioners we should be very aware of, especially in teachers. Watching teachers and making sure that they aren't taking any kind of liberty in that space that goes against a very, very simple credo, which is not to harm. It's okay for a teacher to relentlessly keep pushing or keep pointing, sometimes tickling just a little bit. But it's not okay for carte blanche to, to really be the... the uh, uh, it's not okay for teachers to behave in a way that is beyond the scope of the cultural norm, at least not too far beyond. So anyway, this non-self, this realization of the non-self, we point it out almost every time we sit. Whenever we breathe in and we are still, and breathe out and recognize that we are one with the all. Whenever that begins to carry us as we move, that stillness begins to carry us as we move, or at least our movement is informed by that stillness, we start recognizing that this idea of my feelings, my role, my wishes, wants, and desires, my needs, all pertaining to me, that starts to shake loose a little bit. We start recognizing that this infinite spaciousness that we give a name, we call it stillness, is something that is equally available to all beings. It's not your stillness. It's not my awakening. It never is. It's precisely beyond that in us which feels separate like that. It's past it. It's beyond the constraints of time because it's always in the now. It is always in the present moment, that, that realization. It is always beyond mind because it is beyond concept, thought, feeling. And the minute we start kind of recognizing this, it's not something that we see, it's not something that we uh, touch, but it's something that we kind of start to feel. And it changes us. 
just changes us from being egoic and contracted and it bursts forth sometimes quietly sometimes with a giant hurrah or bang but it begins to show up and inform what it is that we do and as it begins to show up it can also hide one of the things that's uh, uh, very important, I think, for practitioners to recognize is that as they begin to shake loose all this conditioning, as they begin to kind of break through the egg, as it were, I've sometimes equated it to the chick and the mother hand peck perfectly together in order to crack that egg, the student and the teacher, the teaching and everything else pecks right when it hits perfectly, when the beaks of both of those things hit together, it cracks open and we are exposed to that which is beyond thingness. And I know that must sound really esoteric and intellectual, and I'm sorry, but it's like what we're trying to do is literally crack that egg of separation into unity. And from that recognition of unity, we bring it back into the way we behave, the way we walk in the world, the way we talk to people, those we love, and maybe especially those we perceive that we can't stand. So this no-self, this recognition that I am my hands, and my face and my body but that's not all I'm more than that this recognition we have that I am all those things that are going on inside my head and all those feelings I have in my heart and in my limbs yeah I'm those two but there's more I am my name but there's more. If all of those things were taken away, let's say, there would still be something in you that is essential. Something in each of us that just throbs with the life force that all of us share. That essential nature doesn't have a name, doesn't have a body, it doesn't have thoughts. It's at the core of all of that stuff. And having a felt sense of that takes our breath away. It weakens our knees. And it shows up, if we're ready for it, all the time. All the time. Meditation helps us get ready for that. When we go through this process... I mentioned a little bit earlier that there are remnants of ego that still try to manage the experience of awakening, of unfolding, sometimes we say. And one of the great ways that ego can do this is through what we call uh, near enemies. In other words, for someone on the spiritual path, it's very easy for them to intellectualize and understand um, what we call the uh, four Brahmavaras. Um uh, Actually, I kind of mispronounced that. It's 
Brahma Hivaras, I believe. And if I screw that up, forgive. Okay. Like you know, I, like you care really, probably not, but I'm just trying to be technical here. <laughs> anyway, these four uh, four sublime abodes, as we sometimes refer to them in the uh, Buddhism, are loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity, or equanimity. Those four uh, are div the divine states of mind that kind of keep us on the right path, reminding ourselves that it's important to inhabit and to give loving kindness. I say inhabit, meaning we need to live in that space and then from that space of loving kindness. For us to actually be loving and kind towards everyone. For us to be and live from, live in and from compassion. Compassion becomes activity that is infused by this wisdom that there is no me and no mine. Sympathetic joy for us to actually be able to see someone else's release into that which is expansive and feel absolutely connected to that experience for them. To be happy for another's pleasure. And then lastly, equanimity. Can we literally just kind of shift gears? Instead of going forward, can we just put it into neutral and just see what really is going on, what's happening? And not be bound by worry, stress, fear, or pain. Just know that we're being given continually exactly the recipe for awakening in every moment. Well, living from these four... Uh, divine states of mind uh, can get real tricky if there's still a lot of mind there. And we call them near enemies. And I wanted to just point this out real quick um, because while we can, like I said, intellectualize, okay, wait, these are the four play. I need to be loving and kind and I need to have compassion and let, gotta let that infuse my life. I got to make sure that there's sympathetic joy going every which way and no matter what hits the fan, I'm always going to be okay with it. Okay. Well, what the mind can do or what ego can do, if there's still a sense that I am in here and everything else is out there or that there is a me and a mine, if it is my sympathetic joy, my compassion, my equanimity, my loving kindness, we taint it. And so there's yet more to practice. We call these near enemies. In other words, they're closely linked to these, these, uh, my, these uh, 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 divine aspects of mind, but there's a little bit of ego left over. When there's lots of ego left over, it's really easy to spot, and very few people on the path are really into this space. But the opposite 
for instance, or the far enemy of sympathetic joy is hate. The far enemy of compassion is contempt. The far enemy of sympathetic joy is jealousy. And the far enemy of equanimity is resentment. Those are easy to spot, but the near enemy is trickier. And so what I'd really like to do is just spend a couple of seconds here going through these. Um, Jack Cornfield in his book, Path with Heart, talks about them quite brilliantly. So I just wanted to read just a little bit from there. He says, the near enemies are qualities that arise in the mind and masquerade as genuine spiritual realization, when in fact they're only an imitation serving to separate us from true feeling rather than connecting us to it. The near enemy of loving kindness is attachment. At first, attachment may feel like love, but as it grows, it becomes more clearly the opposite, characterized by clinging, controlling, and fear. The near enemy of compassion is pity. And this also separates us. Pity feels sorry for, quote, that poor person over there, unquote, as if he were somehow different from us. The near enemy of sympathetic joy is comparison, which looks to see if we have more of the same as or less than another. Sound familiar? That's a good one. The near enemy of equanimity is indifference. True equanimity is balance in the midst of experience, whereas indifference is a withdrawal and not caring based on fear. If we do not recognize and understand the near enemies, they will deaden our spiritual practice. The compartments they make cannot shield us for long from the pain and unpredictability of life but they will surely stifle the joy and open connectedness of true relationships. So the way our friend Jack Kornfield describes this is slightly different than maybe what I just said, but it's, I think he's so eloquent here in just saying our practice is not just about dissolving. It's about making sure that in that dissolution of the boundary between self and other, the activity that comes from that is informed by that realization. That in other words, we do not allow ego to think it's awake. We don't allow our separate self-sense to don the robe of Buddha's enlightenment. We are constantly on the watch. We're constantly witnessing and paying very close attention to exactly what is going on. And as we continue to pay attention to exactly what is going on, the sense of separateness begins to start to fall away. We start recognizing that it's all one thing, that we're all blessed with a direct connection to the deep singularity of all life 
one and all. I'm not sure how to word this, but um, I had heard a Dharma talk uh, on your iPod about uh, having to do with no guarantees. Mm -hmm. And so uh, as I was listening to you uh, tonight, uh, I, I was I was struck by the idea that there there are no guarantees. We we stay in stillness. Yeah. Don't know. We don't know. <laughs> right. It doesn't guarantee a certain outcome. Right. Um. But I'm convinced that's what I want to do anyway. Then hearing you tonight, I realize that. There's still lots of near enemies in my, <laughs> in my, uh, because I'm thinking of this still as a path, but I'm thinking of it as my path, right? Which uh, maybe that's okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Really, it's okay. It's just not the whole story. That's all. So, in other words, it starts off as our path, right? And then pretty soon, we even recognize that the path itself is delusion. The path itself gives way to the infinite that we've always already been. So I, I sometimes picture this um, as a, it's like a, a diving board, you know? That's my diving board or my path. Either way. And we keep walking along, and then the next thing you know, there's nothing there. But miraculously, we don't hit the water because we are the water. The recognition is we are the air that is on top of the water, that we are one with the all. We are still. Okay? So... The near enemies, if we can identify them and just witness the, the witness how they crop up, just see them, watch them. If we can just kind of relax in that space, what happens is the end of that diving board gets closer and closer and closer, and then it becomes a conscious surrender. I hope that kind of makes a little bit of sense. <laughs> That's a great question, though. I got a little confused at the beginning when you said to don't identify with anything. And are you talking about giving yourself labels? I am this, I am that. I mean, I am a teacher, I am a skier. I mean, those are all what we are. I mean, but are you trying to say just like that's just a little tiny bit? Don't yeah. it's make not too much the whole of it. Story. Mm -hmm. You are all those things. But all of those things are minuscule compared to the infinite, which is also you. You are all those little things. You are those little, you're those roles. 
and you're actually quite magical in the way you, I mean, I know personally from the way you, you know, enact a lot of these things in your life. I mean, you're, you're wonderful. You're a wonderful human being, but there's so much more. There's so much more. So what we do is we begin to identify and then put into perspective all of the things we ever thought we were. Okay? And what we do then is we begin to not identify with anything that is limited and we identify with everything that is unlimited. That identification with all things allows us to have a totally open heart and a totally open mind. And then we walk through the world with the name, with the roles, with the desires, with all those things, but they've shifted. They're no longer me and mine. They just are. Part of everything. Yeah. How did you relate that to grief and not attaching? I mean, grief is, is just such a sense of loss. Yeah. And you can't not attach to people. Right. Although there's healthy attachment to people and unhealthy attachment to people. And it's not that, I mean, the, the loss, the loss that I'm feeling now with uh, uh, my former student who's dying. Uh, and we also have a family member who is dying. Uh, the loss, the stuff that I feel coming up within me crushes my heart. Okay, but it's also this amazing path for practice, being very intimate with that sense of a crushed heart, being very intimate with that sense of grief that I'm experiencing right now. And that doesn't mean I don't cry like a baby, you know, when the lights are out, sometimes even when the lights are on. But being very, what I'm trying to do is just be very, very close to all that's really going on. And I'm trying not to get caught by the experience, but instead allow the experience to inhabit me fully and leave me fully and then inhabit me fully. Just like the waves of grief. I, I don't know if you've ever felt mm -hmm. literally it's like waves. Mm -hmm, it is. You know? Mm -hmm. Just allow the waves to crash over me enough so that I can actually become the waves. That I become oceanic. That I recognize that just like stillness is the quality of spirit, wetness is the quality of all waves, of all water. No matter how deep we go into the ocean, it's always wet. Right? I just want to be there. And I want to let this teaching just flood me. And who knows? You know, when I eulogize him, I'm, I'm, that's going to be real interesting. I don't know what that'll be like. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We'll have to see. And it's a practice of acceptance, I guess, of what is. Exactly. Because it, no matter what we may feel, towards 
um, what type of deep connection we may feel towards another person, part of that connection we feel, part of that wonderful joy and passion. There's a, there's a concomitant feeling, a, a, a conjoined twin of despair, knowing that they won't be here forever. Either I'll go or they'll go first. And living from that place of equanimity helps us. Seeing both sides. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'll let you know how the funeral goes. <laughs> yes, that will be difficult. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's. It has to do with your description of the waves, you know, back on the grief and the et cetera, loss. Um, and the practice of stillness. You know, one isn't still. The, the analogy is one isn't still and the other is still. Mm-hmm. And so where, and as the waves come over, um, or they've been suppressed for a long time, so what you've done is try to push something away. Um, but when it comes, then... The other side is not to attach to that, to sort of surf. <sighs> surf. You ever stood in a wave? Mm-hmm. Try to fight mm-hmm. it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You get exhausted, don't you? Right. Right? Pulls very hard. Yeah. Surf. Go with. Mm. And that's stillness. Mm-hmm. Because you're still within wherever it you is are where that you are. You is, that it is going with you. Right. Now, stillness is whether you are moving or not. Whether you're just like in your day-to-day, you're breathing whether you know it or not. Spirit is there mm-hmm. whether you are consciously Conscious. embodying mm-hmm. it or not. Okay? Mm-hmm. If you allow the waves to beat you down constantly, okay, if you just kind of totally give up and just let them take you wherever they're going to take you, that in and of itself can turn into an attachment. Right? The reason why I use the verb surf is because surfing is active. It's actively engaging with any particular wave actively meeting and letting that wave actually support artistry of living. On the other hand, if we just uh, try to fight the wave or we totally give up to the wave and let it smash us against the rocks, we're not surfing. So the surfing, I think, is a great way of looking at also the way that our process, our path actually develops because it's it literally is going between two worlds, infinite and finite, emptiness, form, right? And so being not only um, individuated, but also totally collectivized, in other words, being finite self and being infinite one. That 
whole process can be described, I think, by someone who probably could say it better than I am right now <laughs> as surfing. Dude. Mm-hmm. Do that. <laughs> Do that. <laughs> Give it a shot. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> Thank you for coming tonight.